Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. We are looking at the woman at the well um, for the next, for this month. So that's the the passage that we're sitting in. For those who were able to make it to um, House Church last week, was it? Um, You would have encountered it and started to dive into it a bit. But um, tonight I'm going to have do a bit of a reading of this passage from um, the early church fathers um, which is very generic and I'll explain a bit of that but maybe I thought I'd just get someone to read it out first does anyone feel like speaking on the microphone and reading out the passage oh thanks Eloise now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had been given to, sorry, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, there is, sorry, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now, and sorry, and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. 
God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Great story. And so over the next couple of weeks, we'll just be looking at this story through different perspectives. And there's a lot in this passage. There's a lot of conversation going on there's a lot of bits coming through so there'll be a lot of different things that we touch on but tonight I want to look at this or look at some of the aspects of this passage just using inspiration from the early church fathers so before I get into looking at the passage I thought I'd explain to you guys what the, who the early church fathers were and a bit about them because I don't think it's something that we're some that we're particularly familiar with necessarily so the early church fathers it encompasses this kind of wide range of early Christian thinkers and theologians from the first century to around the mid-eighth century. So we're talking about a large period of time that gets kind of lumped together as the early church fathers. And particularly they flourished in their finest theological musculature in the fourth and fifth centuries. And one of the reasons that this group of theologians is so actually really important for us is that they were the ones that compiled the New Testament and they were the ones that wrote the creeds. So much of what has been handed down to us, the the faith passed on, is from these guys. And if you know, it's possible in some of these places to follow the trajectory of some of these guys who were discipled by the first disciples, who discipled the next as the generations go through. They're quite close to Jesus himself. So it's they're much, much closer to in time to um, to to Jesus and to the culture of the day than than we are. And so to say that tonight I'm going to do a reading of the early church fathers is totally bodgy and um, simplistic because there is absolutely no way you can do an early church father's reading of this passage. In fact, you could do 56 early church father's readings of this passage using the writings and of the early church fathers. So I know that anyone sitting in the crowd that is an expert in patristic theology would be very unhappy with me, but we're going we're to give it a go. Um, so um, these are some of the names of the early church fathers. We have the people who are called the apostolic fathers. These are the ones that were literally in the first and second century. So these are the ones really close to, to Jesus and to, to, his, to his followers. So we've got Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp. So here's how some of it works. So it's widely believed that the author who wrote the Gospel of John, 1, 2, 3 John and the Apocalypse is um, John the theologian um, Polycarp was his disciple so so John was discipled directly by Jesus Polycarp was discipled by John and Ignatius was Polycarp's disciple so when you're reading like Polycarp 
Ignatius, who really only reading one or two generations shifted from Jesus. So it's quite, quite close. I mean, I, I don't know if that means anything to you, but anyway, it's interesting. Um, so, so that's how that worked. Then as we go on through the ages, we end up um, finding the early church fathers falling into a couple of distinct categories. Um, and it's really just based on the language that they wrote in. So we have the Greek early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyon, Clement of Alexandria, Origen. The Cappadocian fathers who are Basil the Great. If you, ever, if you need some helpful baby name um, ideas, this is great to look at one of these lists. Basil, she could make a comeback. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, um, Gregory of Nazianzus. And uh, so those three are kind of important. They're known as the Cappadocian fathers. And like, I need to make a huge disclaimer about doing a reading from the early church fathers. And it's hugely patriarchal. Um, you don't see any women in these lists. And that's a problem, I think. But it's actually just a feature of that time in that either women didn't write stuff down, women weren't given the same levels of respect or study or opportunity as the men. And so it is, I'm, I'm acknowledging that, that in particular that early church fathers is steeped in patriarchy and that, that there are problems there. Interestingly, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory is Basil's younger brother, and then Gregory of Nazianzus, who was their really good friend, all three of them were closely discipled by Basil and Gregory's older sister Macrina. So she is known to be the theologian behind them who taught them everything they know. It's just that she doesn't get any acknowledgement. She's just the background one. And often if you read any writers of the early church, they will often say that the theology these men are writing about is because they are watching the women at work in the world. So if you go through any list of martyrs, you will see it full of women. The women, and men too, but women were actually living out the life of Jesus and the kingdom of God very effectively in the world, but they just didn't get the opportunity to write down the cool theology. But we know that those three in particular were discipled by Macrina. Maximus the Confessor, who had his tongue cut out because everyone thought he was a heretic, um, but he, he wasn't. He wrote some really good stuff. Those who wrote in Latin, Tertullian, Hilary of Poitiers, Ambrose, and Augustine of Hippo, you'll all heard of Augustine. That's the famous one. Um, and then those who wrote in Syriac, um, Ephraim the Syrian, Isaac of Antioch and Isaac of Nineveh. And so we have these sort of three streams, um, writing in Greek, writing in Latin, writing in Syriac. Um, and they're, you know, they're hard to read. They're, sometimes it feels like worse than reading Shakespeare because it's the language is clunky, it's a different culture. Um, and... I like reading people who have read them and then tell me what they say. That's how it works for me because I'm just like, oh. Anyway, but um, so, I, so I have actually been thinking, oh, it would be interesting to sort of see what some of these guys would say about a story like this and to hear maybe some things that we wouldn't normally hear come through in Scripture. So that's what I'm doing tonight, but it's very haphazard and it's a, the culmination of a few different things. So... One of the things that I will say is really common in the early church fathers as they approach scripture is that they were all very um, metaphoric with how they read um, 
the, the Gospels in particular. And what I mean by that is they were less interested in just the literal reading of the text. So in this case, they were less interested in the details of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, where they met, what was going on, what was said. I mean, they were interested in that, but they were always kind of looking for metaphoric meaning in the text. They were always looking for deeper connections. They were always like, you know those things how you can read a poem and then there are seven different interpretations and you read some person's deep interpretation and you think, I have no idea what that means and how you got that out of the poem. The early church fathers are a bit like that. But they liked playing around with things. And I think um, I have had a, I haven't always liked that probably about about the early church fathers, I haven't always liked that they just seem to like see these hidden meanings because I have tended to be like, you should be able to just read the Bible and understand what it says, like, you know, plain kind of text type of thing. And I still probably lean a whole lot more that way. But I have actually come to really appreciate some of their perspectives, that they have seen things that we just can't see. And actually being much closer to the language of the New Testament and the Old Testament, being much closer to the culture of the day, both um, Jewish culture but also Greek culture in which the New Testament was steeped, I think they've got insights in the word of God that we just don't see and we miss and we can learn from them. So I'm kind of, I'm just, I suppose I'm just, my disclaimer is if you also think, oh, all this metaphoric meaning, that's just too much for me. I, I fully understand why you would feel like that. So um, I want, so here are a few things about this story about Jesus meeting this woman at the well that I want to just pull out. So I just want to pull out a few things tonight and trust that God will speak to us through these things. The first thing the early church fathers saw when they read this passage is that because they were so familiar with the Old Testament, um, they are always looking for resonance between the, the New Testament and the Old Testament. They have a huge, hugely high regard that the writers of the New Testament and specifically the writers of the Gospels, the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, were doing multiple things at once so they weren't just dear diary Jesus today went to Samaria like they were structuring their uh, the, the writers of these gospels were structuring things so that there was there was hidden depths within the passage so there's more than one thing to encounter so one of the things that they saw immediately is the, the fact that Jesus met this woman at a well they would have instantly connected to the idea that in the Old Testament there are three incredibly significant meetings at wells between a man and a woman. And in each instance that meeting ended in marriage. So Isaac meets Rebecca at a well, or actually the messenger for Isaac meets Rebecca at the well, but it ends in Isaac and Rebecca getting married. Jacob, or Israel, meets Rachel, the one he really wants to marry, <laughs> at the well. And Moses meets his wife, Zipporah, at a well. And so there are these well meetings in the Old Testament between a man and a woman that always ended in marriage. And so when John... Now, they're not saying Jesus didn't meet the Samaritan at the well. Like, they're not saying that that didn't actually happen. What they are saying is there's more meaning to this than just a haphazard encounter at a well. There's something deeper going on between Jesus and this woman than just he got thirsty and stopped midway on his journey and it 
happened to be at a well and there happened to be a woman meeting. Like they're, they're wanting us to connect in our minds this idea that meetings between a man and a woman at a well end in marriage. So there's that going on that um, the early church fathers saw in this passage. One of the other things that um, the early church fathers saw in this passage is there's a really interesting play on words with the word husband in this passage, which is mentioned several times. Now, um, really brief reminder about Samaritan history. The Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews because they were from the northern tribe of Israel who were sent into captivity early and then when they returned, they intermarried with pagan people. The Jews are more considered to be the southern tribe of Judah who were sent into captivity after Israel was, many years after, who were in captivity for a while but didn't intermarry and then came back to the land as like pure Jews. So Samaritans were looked down upon because they weren't purebreds. I mean, this is really common in human history. But that's why there's all these tension between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans only um, believed in the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah. They didn't read anything after Deuteronomy. Um, and they believed that you should worship God not in Jerusalem but on the mountain that they lived on. So there was a lot of tension between these people. But specifically it was about the fact that the Samaritans had intermarried with pagan people. So... There's, the word husband is mentioned several times in this passage. And again, we, we, we've gotten a hint. This, this passage might be about marriage because there's a man and there's a woman meeting at a well. And then there's all this talk about husband. And the really interesting thing about the play on words in this is in the Old Testament, there were two words for husband. A legal wife would call her husband Adon, which was a Hebrew word meaning husband. Um, but if you were a concubine... You weren't allowed to call your husband Adon. You had to use the Canaanite term for husband or the Canaanite term for Lord, which was Baal. So if you were a concubine, you owned property, you had to call your husband Baal. If you were the legal wife, you were allowed to call him Adon. So Sarah, when we're talking about Abraham, Sarah was allowed to call Abraham Adon. Hagar had to call Abraham Baal. Okay, so there's this interplay of like words happening in this. And so when Jesus, you know, he's having this encounter with this Samaritan woman and he says to her, go back and call your husband. Um, it's like, is he meaning Adon or is he meaning Baal? Like what, what, what's the terminology here? And then she says to him, I don't have a husband. And Jesus replies to her, this is the, where she thinks he's a prophet, and he, she, he says to her, that's right, you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. Now this is what the early church fathers saw in that. The Samaritans intermarried with five pagan nations, representing five pagan gods and so when Jesus says to this Samaritan woman you have five husbands they're seeing not just the literal she's had five husbands 
But he's speaking about her as a Samaritan woman representing Samaritan culture saying, yes, you've had five Baals. And the man you're now with is not your husband. Literally meaning the man you're sitting here at the well at, the marriage well, the, the husband and wife meeting well, Jesus, is not her husband. But she's had five Baals, five, five pagan gods in the Samaritan culture. And so like Jesus, this is like kind of opening up these kind of layers of meaning in this simple encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He's saying to her, it's sort of like he's enacting a marriage proposal to this Samaritan woman who has had five unfaithful husbands. She, you know, the Samaritan people have had five unfaithful gods who have not been like loyal to them. And here is Yahweh sitting at the well like a husband waiting for his bride saying to her, I will be your faithful husband. You've had five unfaithful marriages. I will be faithful to you. So there's this whole wordplay, interplay, cultural interplay happening in this, um, in this passage that I think is just really beautiful. It's like Jesus is offering himself to this Samaritan woman in fidelity to her out of the experience of her culture who has been looked down upon out of these five unfaithful Baals that they've worshipped over time. And so, I mean, I don't know what you think about things like that, but it has actually sparked my imagination, I suppose, for the depths of the writing in John, for the depths of what God's calling us to, for the beauty of what um, Jesus is speaking to in this, this woman's culture as he sits at this well in, a, in, a, in an enacted marriage proposal inviting this woman who's experienced nothing but infidelity from the gods that she's worshipped and sitting there as Yahweh the faithful one saying, I will be faithful to you. All these other gods that you've chased after and you've encountered who've made promises to you, they've let you down but I will be faithful. I am the faithful one. And I think um, there is this this beautiful passage in the, the book of Hosea which we know is a is a book about marriage and it's a book about faithfulness and it's a book about all those kinds of things. And I know that this passage was resonating in the, the ears and the hearts and the minds of the early church fathers and probably the early church listeners of this passage of John because again there's these Old Testament resonances that are spinning around that we often miss. But let me read to you from Hosea chapter 2 and verses 16 to 23. And this is, what, um, this is what Hosea writes. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master or my Baal. In that day, oh, I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you with righteousness and justice, with love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel, which means the planting of the Lord. And I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And just the resonance is in that passage of like, no longer will you call me Baal, but you will call me husband. And the Lord will betroth himself to this Samaritan woman. And, and then in kind of course, the Lord betroths himself to us in faithfulness and in love with justice and compassion and like forever and ever. So there's this beautiful reading the early church fathers had of this encounter of this woman at the well that I'd never seen before. Like this, this marriage proposal between Yahweh and the Samaritan people. This acknowledgement that these Baals that they'd worshipped over time had let them down and been unfaithful to them. But Yahweh, the faithful one, is going to sit and meet them at their well and propose marriage to them and say, I will be faithful to you and I will show love and compassion and justice to you. And I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful um, fulfillment of the prophecy in Hosea and a, and a beautiful reminder to us, I suppose, of the faithfulness of God as he presents, as Jesus presents himself to us in faithfulness, love and compassion. And of course, all of that, you know, marriage encounter is taking place within the context of a conversation about thirsting and about um, water and waters that will satisfy. And I guess as I've sort of thought about this passage and, you know, what, 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 is it, what does it bring to me? I guess I've, you know, it's, I thought it's hard to talk about, not hard to talk about this, but I think there's been a lot of talk in history about with Christians about idolatry and things that we've run to, uh, things other than God. And there's been all, sometimes the idea of the, the lordship of Christ or the, you know, the, you know, us being faithful to Jesus, it's, it's caused us all to burn bad CDs and, you know, do all kinds of things that are kind of probably an exercise in missing the point. Um, I think one of the things I see in, in this passage is not Jesus calling this woman to be faithful um, he's pledging his faithfulness to her um, he is saying I will be faithful husband you've experienced unfaithful Baals but I will be faithful Yahweh and I think what it invites us into is recognizing like what are the unfaithful Baals in our lives that promise the world to us but leave us thirsty. And we turn to them when, you know, in times of need, but they're only going to ever leave us dry. And Yahweh would wait for us at the well, wait for us in our thirstiness, wait for us at the end of our 
experience of unfaithfulness from the gods who've promised the world and then let us down in order to promise faithfulness to us. And, yeah. And so I, it's made me think about what are, what are the, where are the places that we turn to when we're thirsty? Where are the places other than Jesus that we turn to when we're needy? Like, we've all got... I'm not saying they're all... I'm not calling you idolaters. I'm not trying to go down the road of like, you're all filthy, idolaters, and we're all, you know, I'm not trying to do that. But I am trying to recognize that actually many of us have probably five Baals in our life, five unfaithful husbands, five unfaithful places we turn to, things that promise us satisfaction, but only ever leave us thirsting for more. We have those. We could name them shopping, online shopping. Netflix, cinnamon, (laughs) Um, food, wine. Like sometimes for us it's relationships with certain people. Like we, I think there are, when you think, if if you were to think about where do you turn to or who do you turn to when you're thirsty, when you're needy, when you're dry, when you're, what, what are you turning to? And of course we know the right answer is Jesus. But if we're honest, it's often Jesus and. And I, I wonder what it looks like for us to feel the invitation of Jesus sitting at the well of f- faithful marriage to us, knowing that we've turned aside many a time to different things that promise us satisfaction and have only left us empty. And Jesus will still meet us at the well and pledge his faithfulness to us and promise to give us living water that we will never experience thirst again. And that doesn't mean nothing will ever go wrong for us again. That doesn't mean we'll always feel amazing, but it does mean we'll always have a faithful God who is there for us. And so I just, um, yeah, I've wondered, you know, a few questions. I think, oh yeah, I did write them up. To whom or what do you turn to in times of thirst or need? What might it look like for you to trust that Jesus really is the only one who will be faithful to you? Even in our own unfaithfulness, we turn multiple places looking for satisfaction in all different ways, but Jesus waits at the well of our life in faithfulness. And what might Jesus' offer of fidelity look or feel like for you this afternoon? to hear afresh the promise from Jesus that he will be faithful to you, that he will give you living water, that he will fill you up, streams of living water from within, that the other wells that you go to drink from, you'll return to again and again and again and again and never be fully satisfied, but Jesus waits at the well of eternal life for us in fidelity. One of the, the beautiful little endings to this story um, is that there's this little, little, little detail, I guess, in um, verse 28 where, you know, Jesus and the, the, the woman have finished their conversation and um, then the disciples come and interrupt the goodness with their unasked questions (laughs) and then it says leaving her water jar 
the woman went back to town and said to the people and went on. But there's this idea that she came to this well with the capacity that she had to draw from the stuff that kept just never could satisfy. But when she encountered the faithfulness of Jesus, she forgot her water jar and left it behind. And I guess I want to offer you at the end of this an invitation. And I want to say, I suppose, perhaps a lot of the time we've been told, you must leave your water jar behind. You must not drink from other wells that don't satisfy you. Stop watching that. Stop doing this. Stop going there. You know what I mean? Like we've, we, we've, all, we've all experienced those declarations of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And yet I see in this passage that the reality is that when you encounter the faithfulness of Christ, you forget that thing that you lean on. Like, I think that's the right path. Not to, not that we're not disciplined, not that we're not faithful, not that we don't stretch ourselves, but we don't do it out of shoulds, but we do it out of forgetfulness because we've encountered the faithful one. That when we encounter the faithful one, we forget all those things that we use. We leave our water jars behind. And so I wonder what it would look like in your life for you to forget, encounter Jesus so beautifully that you leave your water jar behind and you no longer have to do the efforts of drawing from those wells that only ever leave you thirsty. So that's an early church father's reading of this little passage. Marriage at the well, unfaithful bowels, faithful Yahweh, encounters with Jesus that take our breath away enough that we forget our water jars and leave them behind and that we we seek to mirror that faithful relationship back to God, that we let go of our bowels and we surrender to the the loving husband of Yahweh. So we're going to come to the table and um, enjoy the the life and the goodness of Jesus. And the kids are going to come back and join the chaos, or create the chaos. So yeah, maybe someone can run and grab the kids. Oh, everyone wants to run. Um, but maybe before the chaos starts, I think it would be good for us just to take some time to just to be with Jesus. So how about I pray and then I'll just, yeah, let me pray. Jesus, um, would you encounter us like you did this woman? Would you love us like you did this woman? Would you see us like you saw this woman? And as you know us and love us and see us, and Jesus, you know the places we turn that leave us dry. You know the bowels we turn to when we're needy, that over-promise and under-deliver. You know the things we do that we think will fill us up and bring us satisfaction or happiness. And then we wake up and we just feel much the same. And Jesus, I want to ask that you would meet each one of us at the well, promising your faithfulness to us 
promising your love and compassion, promising your understanding and your justice and your truth. Would you help us to know you, Jesus, in such a way that we forget our water jars? We forget what it looks like to try and drink ourselves. And we trust in you, the living water, spring, springs of living water. And so, Holy Spirit, I just want to pray for all of us tonight. I pray for those of us who are thirsty. I pray for those of us who are needing you. I pray for those of us disappointed. May we thirst after you. May you fill us up, Jesus, with water that satisfies, eternal life that bubbles from within. And as the kids run in because they want the bread and they want the juice and they want all of the leftovers, would you help us to run to you as well? for your life-giving body, for your life-giving blood, and may we want all the leftovers as well for ourselves. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central.